Here's a quick one before bedtime. Famous last words there. Quick one before bedtime. Three hours later. I really got to go to bed. But, you know, on the subject of lechery recently, I promise I'm not going to talk about whale tales again. I'd like to. <laughs> I'd like to talk about whale tales again. But uh, I'll switch gears and just talk about pornography. You know, I've said on here before how I'm not anti-porn at all. I don't think porn should be banned. But I'm glad that there's been some pushback in recent years from men. Because that's kind of the inverse of the way it was years ago. It used to be that men were the ones always kind of insisting on the right to look at porn. And feminism at that time was very anti-porn. And it was framed around the idea that, you know, women are abused uh, and manipulated. They're often women who come from bad situations and they're being exploited in porn. That was a big part of it, but that wasn't all of it. There was just there was a pretty big, pretty uh, significant sentiment in feminism that was just straight up anti-porn. I mean, anti-objectification of women in general. It wasn't strictly women are exploited in porn. It was against the entire idea of objectification of women. And it's interesting how that switched gears. Where you know now we're reaching a time where there's more and more men who are anti-porn or at least resistant to porn. And there are a lot more women. You know, feminism today, whatever that, whatever that actually means today, I don't know, it's shifted so much, but where feminism today is very pro-porn and encourages women to participate. And maybe part of that is because women feel like they have more control. With the internet being what it is, women can manage their own porn careers. But, I, you know, I noticed over the years, like, having girlfriends and stuff who were like, I like porn. I'm, I'm one of those girls who's into porn. And even the most, even women I've known who are, like, the most into porn out of any woman I've known is not into porn the way a man is. Maybe that's just the ones I've known. I'm sure there are women who exist who are more aggressively into porn, an aggressive taste in porn. I don't know. I'm sure that exists. But I don't think it's typical. But you kind of saw it coming, you know, where now we have this time where, like, women tend to be the ones that are much more pro-porn. At least a certain type of woman. At least maybe women from a certain social group. Women who are on one side of the cultural divide are very pro-porn. Whereas a lot of men are, are resistant. And a lot of these men aren't strangers to porn. A lot of the men who are anti-porn grew up in an age where they had more access to porn than any group of men has ever had in history. And I'm part of that generation. And I think I've said this before, but it's like I was never that into porn. I was never a porn addict. But when I think about like being a teenager, being in my early 20s, I was probably looking at por more porn than any man had ever looked at in history. I mean, not, not any man, but I was looking at more porn, significantly more porn than any man had ever looked at decades earlier. Like the amount of porn that I was looking at would have been considered extreme in the 1950s or 60s or even the 70s or the 80s, I imagine. But I'm sure that I was completely average for my generation because I knew kids who had CDR spindles of porn. 
I knew I had a friend in high school who I didn't know this about him until we were at a party at his house and just kind of as a gag, what we call a gag, he was like, let's put on some porn. And he he busted out like it was either a CD case or a spindle, but I couldn't believe how many DVDRs, as they were called, there were of porn. And, and really, there was like Max Hardcore on there. I don't even know that it was all stuff that he was actually into, but it turned out like he and some of his friends just were really into downloading porn. And I never did that. I never downloaded porn. Like that was the era where you would go to these websites and there'd be like four videos that were like 30 seconds long. And that was it. It wasn't something I downloaded. It was just like you clicked on the video and you watched it for 30 seconds. Then you clicked on another video and watched it for 30 seconds. That was all I ever really looked at, aside from pictures and things like that. But I was blown away that this friend, he just he had like a CDR spindle, a DVDR spindle. I mean, I might not be exaggerating when I say there were probably like 50 discs in there. And I was on Robitussin at that party. I had drank the most Robitussin I ever drank. I went through a little phase in high school where I was enjoying DXM. And I think I drank a 10, I, I drank a, uh, I know the most I ever drank was 10 ounces. And when you combine that with weed, you get really fucked up. You know, eight ounces was kind of the, if you really want to trip, you drink eight ounces. But I tried 10 ounces and then gave the, the last, like I bought like an eight ounce bottle and a four ounce bottle and I drank eight and then two. And then I gave what was left in the bottle to another friend. And I mean, that, that night is a blur. But what I do remember is being really fucked up on Robitussin and my friend busting out these spindles of CDRs. But some guys were like that. A lot of guys were like that. So even though I was consuming, the, the amount of porn that I was consuming as a teenager would have been considered like an extreme porn addiction by a 1950s standard, or even just by the previous generation standard, by a Gen X standard. It wasn't extreme by my generation standard. But, um, so I'm part of this generation that started consuming more porn than anybody ever had. We had more access to porn for free. You know, we weren't just, we. none of us had to buy porn. None of us had to go purchase it. It was simply available. And it's my generation that was the first generation of men, aside from those who were religious, who often were hypocrites, but... You know, aside from people who were diehard Christians or, you know, part of some other religion that denounced porn and masturbation and that kind of thing. You know, my generation is really the, the first group of secular minded men who pushed back on porn. But I think in large part, that's because we were the first generation to consume it. And now I can see where some younger generations like there are Zomer men. People would have no idea what I'm talking about. Zomer. There are Zomer men, Generation Zomer, who are now very resistant to it, from what I gather. And there are these internet movements, you know, dedicated to it, where it's like, you know, I'm not even going to use the stupid phrase they use, but they, you know, they've dedicated an entire month where they encourage each other to not look at porn. And it's kind of snowballed from there, where that's turned into men outright telling each other, don't look at any porn.
Don't look at any of it. And I think that kind of resistance is good because it does mess you up. It does mess you up to be looking at that much porn and it does something to you. You know, Napoleon Hill talks in one of his books about uh, sexual transmutation and how, you know, transmuting your sexuality into other goals and tasks is massively beneficial. And I believe that. You know, not just getting that quick pleasure all the time for one changes your dopamine. It changes your, you know, not releasing that dopamine all the time is going to impact your life in some way. It's going to impact, you know, and that kind of goes in the face of what you hear, which is like, oh, dude, you're acting like a guy who hasn't gotten laid, dude. Dude, you need to get laid. Dude, you just need to go jack off, dude. You used to hear a lot of stuff like that. Like if somebody seemed angry or they just seemed to be preoccupied with something they shouldn't be preoccupied with, you would hear them, you would hear people be like, dude, that guy just needs to get laid, dude. Dude, that guy just needs to go jack off and, you know, stop thinking about these things. That works for some things. But, you know, that's not, you know, that's, that's, that's a whole other issue. But, uh, you know, sexual transmutation, I wouldn't be able to break it down. I mean, it's not exactly a, I don't know what the science says about that. But just on an intuitive level, it would make sense that not giving yourself sexual satisfaction all the time and instead focusing that energy on other tasks would have some sort of impact. It changes your relationship to other things you do, other things you focus on. And to do that without being horny about it. You know, because if you're still sidetracked by porn and sex, that's a different story because you're distracted. But if you can if you can do that, if you can focus that energy elsewhere without being distracted by the things that you're not indulging in, that's pretty incredible. You can, you can achieve uh, significant results spiritually. I mean, that's built into religion. There's a reason why monks don't have sex and don't masturbate. Or they're told not to. They're not supposed to. That's a form of sexual transmutation as well. But, you know, I, I don't know that the, this new movement of young men who are discouraging porn, discouraging masturbation discouraging sexual immorality. I don't know that they are necessarily thinking about transmutation, but it seems like they've found it on their own. Because we humans have a tendency to do that. Humans have a tendency to find the same things on their own. They tend to relearn the same lessons that ancient humans once learned. And you sometimes learn that about religion, where you're like, oh, well, it turns out that that idea wasn't just rooted in repression alone. The reason for it has gotten lost over generations. But when you hear about monks being discouraged from sexual immorality, or just Buddhists in general aren't supposed to be sexually immoral, however you want to define it, and monks in particular aren't supposed to have sex or masturbate, and you see that in Christianity, 
where young men are told not to look at porn, not to masturbate, to have sex only in the context of marriage. Interesting how they both seem to find that. And instead of saying, oh, religion's just there to repress, you know, sexuality, there's obviously more going on. There's obviously much more going on if these religions that we don't typically think of as the same have come to that conclusion independently. And then you see young men who grew up at a time where all the porn you ever wanted was available to you in subcategories. Because you didn't have that, like before the internet, you know, I, I got a hold of a cut, like I had a Best of Jenna Jameson video on a VHS. And I was at least the third person to have my copy. A kid, it was just a, a dubbed VHS of the Best of Jenna Jameson. And a kid had given my friend that copy and he in turn gave it to me. It was like contraband. And if you managed to get a hold of a magazine, like you had no choice. You know, it's not like if you were a teenager pre-internet or just, you know, I was probably like 12 years old or something when I got a hold of that, 12 or 13. But if I had the internet at that time, I didn't have a connection. And, and you were afraid too. That's the thing too. If you had a family computer, even if you had the internet, those first few years of having the internet in the late 90s, it was your family computer. And there was a lot of fear over like, my parents are going to find out what I was looking at. It's going to be in the search history. You can only look at it when you're alone. And if you were like me, like the family computer was in this landing area. We called it the landing. And it, it wasn't in a closed room. It was just an open space that anybody who was going to the bedrooms would walk by. Anybody who was walking around the house could easily walk by it. So you could only look at porn online at that point if nobody else was home. And even then you were afraid to because, you know, you're like my mom took a class. She went back to school at one point to get her medical degree or her, um, her medical billing degree. And, uh, like they taught them how to use the internet cause it was new. And so she took some class on using the internet. And one of the things they taught them was how to like look up your search history, which seems obvious to us now, but to somebody who had never used computers, they gave you some sort of walkthrough and there was one day where my mom goes, oh, I just found all the websites we've ever been to. And she said it very innocently. I don't think she was trying to scare me or anything because, you know, she wasn't a very restrictive person. I don't think she wanted me looking at porn. Like one of the first thing, one of the first kind of somewhat scandalous photos I ever had from the Internet was there was a picture of Pamela Anderson. <laughs> this is like early on. It was a picture of Pamela Anderson just kneeling in like white lingerie she wasn't even naked like her hair was covering her boobs and she was just in a white thong and she was really tan i printed it out it was super pixelated and huge and i hid it in a in some magazine like i hid it like in a rack of magazines just like between some magazines and, you know my mom didn't snoop around but you know she would come in my my room sometimes sometimes she would vacuum and things like that and one day i just noticed it was gone it was never spoken about, but she found this photo of Pamela Anderson, probably in my stuff. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thinking about Pamela Anderson, 
but she, you know, because you didn't know. Like, I mean, you didn't know who to look up. You're 12 years old. Who, who are you going to look up? 12, 13 years old. It's not like you have some, like, ultra. Again, you don't have some ultra specific taste. It's like, even if you have the whole internet at your disposal, who are you even going to look up? Well, Pamela Anderson's famous. She's hot. But, uh,. And there was a day where my mom was like, I just found every website we've ever been to. And I just like froze. Nothing. She didn't end up looking at it or anything because we're talking tons of websites and stuff. But point being is just that you really didn't have the time or the resources, certainly pre-internet as a kid to have some highly specific categorical taste in porn or even softcore porn for that matter. And then even when you got the internet, it's like usually it was a family computer that was in a central location in the house. You had to use it when you were home alone. You know, because I remember I would come home from school and there would be like maybe an hour at most before my mom got home from work. So it's like you don't have a lot of time to be like curious or searching. You're on a mission. So a development that came later, though, as we all started getting personal computers, as kids, as it became common for kids to have their own computers, this is before phones, before you had internet phones, you know, you, you started to see more categorization. And it was interesting to see the categories expand, because I always liked women with big asses. That's, you know, such a, a common thing now, but you wouldn't even find that category. That wasn't even a category that I remember. Like, I remember having to go to, like, the BBW section, which was a real gamble. That was a real gamble because that meant you might see something absolutely grotesque. Like, you're just looking for a woman who's a little bit thicker than, like, the more thin, typical porn stars of the era. But you had to go look at stuff like that. You had to go try to find stuff there. I don't remember a big asses section until a little bit later. And now that's just a staple. Now it's one of the, probably one of the most popular categories. Women are getting big ass implants. So that was a change. Just seeing like more and more subcategories started to appear. And I never really strayed from that stuff. You know, I never really strayed from the basics. I never got into anything too heavy or weird. I just kind of, I always stayed just within the boundaries of what I liked. You know, I never really felt like, I never really felt like diving in. I just kind of stuck to with, with what I always liked. Because that's another thing that you've heard about young men from my generation and younger is that the taste got more extreme, maybe more violent, more fetishistic. And that wasn't me at all. That was not me at all, but I, I did hear about, you hear that a lot about other men and you hear a lot about impotence. I mean, a big part of this too is I've heard a lot of anecdotal stories and it's also come out in studies that impotence is a big problem with younger men. And the idea is that that's a result of men being Indul men indulging in porn more and more during their formative years and finding highly specific porn that they like that really can't be satisfied with a real woman, with a typical woman. 
And so there's a lot of impotence. I don't know if that's the whole story, though, because we're also seeing testosterone in general dropping drastically. You can hear it in men's voices. I'm amazed sometimes. I was listening to some guys talk online who are, are kind of conservative, younger guys talking about theology. Smart guys, but I was amazed at just their voices. Like they all sound, their, their voices were all very high pitched and nerdy and you know, that's fine. Everybody has different voices, you know, but I've just noticed that more and more that men's voices, you know, their inflection has gotten insane where so many men, especially men of a certain social type talk and upspeak all the time. Their voices are higher pitched, kind of effeminate. And I'm not, I'm not even trying to say that as a criticism. I'm just saying it objectively that I notice it more and more voices are nerdier, they talk in upspeak, and they speak in more of a higher pitch. And then we're, we keep hearing that testosterone levels are dropping significantly. So, I mean, that probably plays a role with the impotence, as well as the fact that these men grew up having all of their fetishes, all, all everything available to them in subcategories. So I don't think it's any one reason, but we have heard that impotence is an issue. And I think all of this has played a role in men starting to reject porn and to encourage each other, like which I never imagined. Like I said, when I was 12 or 13, someone gave me like a third or probably fourth hand. I mean, the kid who gave my friend Best of Jenna Jameson, which he then gave to me, and we didn't watch porn together. Like some of my friends, and we were about 12, my friend Ryan had uh, he had all the channels like he was one of the first people I knew to have digital cable and we would stay the night at his house all the time and we would watch some of the softcore shows softcore movies like Emmanuel in Space I think Poison Ivy 3 with uh, girl Jamie something you know movies that they were movies and they weren't they weren't actual porn with penetration and all that but they were you know softcore a lot of nudity a lot of simulated sex. So we would watch those, you know, but I was never part of, you know, I hear about guys who are part of friend groups where they would like jack off together. They would jack off. Never once happened. Never, not even a single time. Who knows what somebody did under their sleeping bag when everybody else was asleep. But in terms of like a bunch of my friends and I, even right as puberty happened, even when we watched these softcore movies nobody ever whipped it out nobody ever even suggested it. it just couldn't have happened with my group of friends but i heard stories about people doing that heard stories about guys doing that can't even imagine it honestly but there was one time where we ordered a hardcore porn it was at my friend ryan's house my friend nick was over and it was during summer and my friend Ryan's mom went to work because we, what we would do is like, we would look at the, he had digital cable. So we would go to the porn channels and you know, you, you had to pay to watch them. So we, we couldn't watch them, but we would read the descriptions and just kind of laugh. But there was one day where his mom was at work and Nick and I kept joking that we were going to order a porn, like a real porn. 
and we kept daring each other to do it. And Ryan, even though it was his house, he was just really hands off. And then eventually we just did like we, like I threw the remote at Nick or he threw the remote at me. I don't think I pressed the button or we might've pressed it together. Pressing the button together is probably the closest we ever came to jerking off in the same room. <laughs> we both, I think we both hit the button together just so that we were both responsible. And we ordered this movie. It was called Return to Fetish Island. And it wasn't anything that weird. The only thing weird about it is that they were all wearing masks and not gimp masks, not leather masks. They were all wearing just like Zorro type masks. That was the only thing fetishistic about it but the movie was called return to fetish island and it had kind of dark imagery and then it came on and it was so much more explicit than anything we'd ever seen because this is before we had the internet or at least before we were really watching anything significant on the internet seeing anything significant and uh yeah they, it, it, there were some like graphic up close shots i think we only watched like you know a minute because we were all kind of horrified it was like not to get too graphic, but it was like a it was like a woman and a man both wearing Zorro masks, sixty nining, and it was just like zooming in on everything, and we were both just horrified. We were all horrified. And then my friend Ryan called his mom. She was at work, and he goes, "Oh, mom!" Uh, and his mom was really cool. And Ryan's my friend who passed away when we were sixteen, but she was really cool. And understanding but he called her at work and he was like mom uh, he came up with this bullshit story he was like nick and eric were joking around about ordering a porn and they accidentally ordered it <laughs> that was all i ever heard that was the last i ever heard of it she didn't ask us for money i think she she, she knew what was going on but uh we even did it in a room because they had this room that was like a spare room, but it also had a TV in it. And it was the only room in the house where there was no window from the outside that could see in. So we specifically did it in that room so that nobody would be able to see in, like no neighbors or anything. But it was just funny because it's like he called his mom and let her know. But it horrified us because we'd never seen anything like that. We'd never seen because like, you know, we all used to watch the because uh, if before digital cable, there was the the porn channels on regular cable but you they, you had to subscribe to them but you could go to those channels and there would be kind of warped static occasionally you would see something but you could hear it all totally clearly so there was the spice channel and i think there was the playboy channel and the spice channel would show hardcore porn i believe i never actually saw what was on the screen but you could certainly hear it totally clearly so that was another, that kind of predated all that. It's what we used to call scrambled porn. Because it was basically just like TV static where you would occasionally see a brief glimpse of something and you would hear it all. A very sensory experience. But uh, anyway, so, you know, you know, within a few years though, it was just a matter of years before men from my generation could look at all the porn they wanted on online and then it just got more and more subcategorized and you know then flash forward like 10 15 years and those same guys are saying hey it's a bad idea to do that all the time it's a bad idea to look at porn every day 
It's a bad idea to look at porn multiple times a day. You shouldn't be doing that. And that's kind of like humanity relearning that lesson. It's kind of humanity, at least men, relearning the lessons that maybe some of these older religions were responding to when they discouraged that kind of behavior. But the thing is, when you discourage that behavior, especially very in a very strict manner, you forget why the lesson was even there to begin with. So humanity has to constantly relearn the same lessons for that reason. Because you go generations, and it, obviously there wasn't any porn earlier on, or there was less porn, but just the idea of masturbating frequently and all that, like that was something humans could always do. And the fact that that was discouraged through these belief systems earlier on, we kind of had to relearn that after we had just constant access to porn. Because the idea too was, was that like a puritanical approach was bullshit. And I still agree with that. Because something that I've seen develop, and I don't agree with this, is that some of these men who grew up with access to porn, these more secular-minded men who relearned that lesson and are now discouraging people from looking at porn, I've seen where some of them have become puritanical about it. And I don't think that's the right approach either. I don't think we should ever ban porn. I don't think we should ever say to never look at it. But I think we should discourage people from indulging in it too much because I think we're seeing the results of that. And I think overall, it's a good thing that there's now this resistance to porn. Which it's funny how the tables turn because I've actually seen the point made that it's anti-feminist to not look at porn. That, sound, that would have sounded so absurd 20 years ago. But I've actually seen that point made that this anti-porn attitude among men is actually anti-feminist. You know, and maybe there's a little bit of that somewhere in it, but that's not where it's coming from. It's coming from experience. It's coming from men experiencing them this themselves. But you never want to get puritanical about it. It's why, I mean, I don't even have the desire to look at much porn, and I haven't for years. I've gone significant periods of time without looking at any porn, but you know, I'm a human being and I do on occasion. And it's been interesting as things have become not only more subcategorized, it's also been interesting to kind of watch the trends develop. And this is something I've noticed more and mo more over the last two or three years, where it seems like every time I do look at porn, I see more and more incest themed porn. And this is probably a water is wet statement to somebody who looks at a lot of porn. Somebody who's actively looking at porn all the time would be like, well, yeah, of course, this has been going on a long time. But it is a relatively new development, like how much of it there is. Because it's not like I'm going to weird websites. Like I'll go to relatively, you know, popular websites as far as I know. I don't go to some niche porn websites on the occasion that I do. I'm going to fairly common websites. Yeah, they have categories for everything. But what's weird is I see this in... Because, again, like, I never had some deep, like, weird interest in, like, one particular thing. Like, I look at fairly normal categories. And I see this both on the main page, and I also see it within the categories I look at, which honestly are really vanilla by today's standards. And, and it, the amount of incest porn that I have to wade through, like, simulated incest, like, mother-son, brother-sister, there's so much of it, it's incredible. And it shows you the power of context, too, because if I see that, I cannot watch it. 
even though I know it's not real, even though, even though I know that it's not actual incest porn, and the people in it, from what I can see, don't even look like mother and son. You know, they don't even look like the age gap isn't even significant enough for them to actually seem like mother and son. It'll just have like a milf looking woman and a guy who's like skinny and looks kind of young. But they don't actually even look, you know, like they're that different in age. So it's like everything about it is fine except for the context. And so it shows you the power of context that simply giving it that description, simply describing it as mother-son or brother and sister is enough to completely repel me. And the, the same is true for those loophole ones because, you know, the, I do remember like the loophole like st stepmother, stepsister. I remember those being around for longer. I feel like that's always been a little more common, not, not as common as it is now, but it's, it's always been a little more common because it's kind of a loophole. It's like, no blood relation. And you always, you've always heard stories about people like somebody with a hot stepmom. I mean, there was in real life, there was a, a Philadelphia mafia member who killed his wife and son. And the wife was like his second wife and his son was a young adult. This really happened in Philadelphia. And uh, he caught the his his second wife and his adult son in bed together. So they weren't actually committing incest because they weren't blood related. And he murdered them both. This was in, I believe, the 1930s. It was a long time ago. And he was tried. He was put on trial. His name was Michael Maggio, if you want to look it up. Uh, but he was put on trial for it and acquitted. Because they said, well, basic, like like basically the court said, like, who wouldn't do that? Who wouldn't kill them for that? I don't think that would happen now. I think you would probably get convicted now. But at that time, it was an honor killing. He caught his second wife in bed with his oldest son from his first marriage. So he killed them both. But that kind of idea has always been around. Like the idea of the hot stepmother who's not your blood relation. So it's sort of this, you know, forbidden, you know, it's forbidden, which makes it more attractive to some people. But that's become a lot more common. You see a lot of stepmother and stepsister stuff. But then I've, I've seen so much more actual stuff that's framed as mother and son or sister and brother. And it's disgusting. And it blows my mind how much of that there is. I don't. It must be popular. I don't, I don't know what kind of numbers it's doing. I, I don't know what the metrics of it are. I don't know. I imagine they get a lot of views. But what does that say? You know, what does it say that, because I don't think they would be titling it that. I don't think that they would be framing it that way if that didn't have an audience. So the fact that there's so much of that is disturbing and should give you pause about porn. That should give you pause when you're thinking about the direction that porn is taken, that a lot of it is framed that way. Another thing I noticed that just shows how pathetic men are is because like as I, as I was kind of talking about the whale tail thing like i'm not even i don't even seek nudity out you know i'm putting maybe too much of myself out there in these recent episodes but i'm not even that attracted to nudity on its own you know as far as like looking at porn and things like that especially where you know like like i think like my favorite stuff is like just still images 
of a woman in like certain clothing, like a certain fit of clothing. Like I'm not attracted to the clothing, but it's like a woman who, a woman who I'm very attracted to, I'm very sexually attracted to wearing a certain like fit of clothing. It's not really anything particular. It's more about like suggestive clothing, like tight pants, you know, or something, but I'm not really into nudity, but you know, so on the rare occasion that I, I do look at porn now, it's often these like still images of just women in like certain suggestive clothing, certain suggestive poses more than anything explicit. And I'm really not into anything explicit. Um, but uh, I'll look at those, I'll look at these image boards of that where there's comments and everything. And you really get a feel for how pathetic men are because you see these Sometimes it's the women themselves posting these things and they'll say like, Hey, do you want to, I don't even want to say what they say, say what they say, say it, but it'll just be something like, Hey, do you want a blankety blank in my blankety blank? Do you want to come over and do blah, blah, blah to me? Do you want me to sit on, to, to, to sit on your blah, blah, blah? You know, it's stuff like that. And if you look at the comments of that, like, there will inevitably be a bunch of men who are like, I sure do. Oh, I just give me, just, I would love to do that. And like, you see where men are responding to this girl online who's just, you know, asking this disgusting question. Cause I always find those kinds of questions disgusting. Like, I don't like it when a girl says that to me, even in person. I don't like it when they ask me questions like that. I don't find it erotic like explicit questions, but especially online where it's just this woman trying to get attention and maybe she's promoting herself because she has an OnlyFans, whatever it is. But like, do you want to come over and blah, blah, blah? And the guy's like, I sure do. Oh my God, I do. God, I would love that. And it's just like the idea of typing that comment is just so absurd to me. And then, you know, you never know too, even if it's supposed to be the girl, like, even if it's allegedly the girl in the photo posting it, half the time it's like their boyfriend manages their account. Like, I've heard that with OnlyFans, where apparently, like, a lot of these women on OnlyFans, their husband or boyfriend manages their account for them. Like, I saw something, I saw an article or something where a guy was talking about how he manages his, own, his wife's OnlyFans account for her, and the men who message her are only interacting with him and he's pretending to be her. That's sick for everybody involved. So it's like when you respond with, God, I sure do. Just tell me when. Just tell me when. You know, guys who respond that way, like they're, they're probably, she, first of all, she's, she might not even be reading it for one. It might be her husband who even posted it for her or her boyfriend or something. And then on the other side of that too is like, sometimes it won't even be the woman posting it. Sometimes it'll just be another creep posting a photo of a woman and guys will respond to those in the same way. It's just, it's, you know, it shows how pathetic men can be. And that's a good reason to discourage porn. You know, it's like that does something to your soul. You know, it does something to your soul to do that. But that said, it's like I'm not puritanical, like where I would never, because just like I was talking about having to, you know, relearn the same lessons. Like if, if we were to get puritanical about porn, let's say that we got puritanical about porn again and we made it very difficult to get a hold of, even online. 
that would suddenly make it that much more desirable. That would suddenly create a vacuum and we would need porn again. And then over time, people would forget the lesson of what too much porn does to you. And so I would never have a puritanical approach. And the reality is we're all human. And on occasion, you want to look at porn, myself included. So you never want to get puritanical. But I just see these responses from men where they're, just, they're like thinking that they're talking to the woman. And I mean, you even see that outside of porn. Like every once in a while on like Instagram or Facebook, I'll get a, a friend request. This actually stopped lately. It used to happen all the time. I haven't seen much of it lately. They might have set up some system to stop this. But I would constantly get friend requests from women who look like models that have some weird name and you go to their profile and it's obviously a bot it's obviously maybe a phishing scam or it's something not right it's not the actual woman in the photos and you go to the page and it's like it's like some woman posting not a woman it's some not a woman posting like professional quality model photos with some really like stupid caption that doesn't even sound real. And you'll see a bunch of men and like half the time they live in like Africa or India, but not always. Sometimes it'll be just some old dude in the US and they're talking to her like she's real. Like, oh my God, you look beautiful. Oh dude, you look so good in this. Sexy, oh sexy. You know, you see that and you're just like, man, that's insane. One, that they can't tell this is fake. And two, that they're saying that at all. Just blows the mind. Just blows my little old mind to see that. Because, you know, I understand, like, like you know, I've had friends who have been into cam girls and stuff, and I don't judge them for that. But that's a whole other set of problems I won't get into, just out of respect. Because I only know about it through friends who have gotten into that. But it, from what I've heard, there's a lot of problems with a guy who gets too into that. Uh, I mean, people get attached to the, to the girls and everything. I did see one thing where, because I've, I've never gone to a cam girl thing. I've never gone to a cam girl site. Uh, but a friend sent me like screen caps of one that he was looking at. And it, it, there was like a button on her page that said bong rip. It was like a tip jar. Because they have tip jars on there. Like you click a button to give them a dollar or something. You're, I think you're already paying, but then on top of that, you give her a dollar and maybe she'll do something by request. But it was, instead of a tip jar, it was bong rip. Because a lot of these girls are into weed. They're really into weed. Weed has played a big role in all this stuff. And I'll get into that in a second. But it was bong rip. And if you tip her, she takes a bong rip. Amazing, you know, just... <laughs> Uh, it blew my mind. I'm ser I'm serious. Like it shouldn't have surprised me. You know, it's not like I'm ignorant of these things, but it's like it blew my mind that it's like you tip her and she takes a rip off a bong, and it said bong rip, and it had like a little icon of a bong, if I remember right. Just amazing. But the whole weed thing is interesting. Like weed plays a big role in all this. Like I've even seen that on some of the image boards that I'll look at, where a lot of the girls will like pose with weed paraphernalia. 
I've even seen it with like non-explicit Instagram girls. Where like on Instagram they'll they'll be like they'll they'll post like a, a pipe with like weed loaded in it. They'll they'll post a picture of themselves. They often have like joints in their hand. Which must be freaking weird. Because I mean, weed has such a high potential to give me an anxiety attack over the year over recent years. Like I can't imagine being a girl getting high and having all these men looking at me. You know, weed makes me so self-conscious these days that it's like, I just can't even imagine like being high, even when weed didn't make me self-conscious. I can't even imagine like getting really stoned, like taking a bunch of bong rips or smoking a joint to myself like they do and having a bunch of men looking at me. Maybe they like it, you know, maybe they're into that, but I just can't imagine that. But weed has played this big role in mainly like the, like the girl, like girls who do this on their own. Or like girls who are cam girls or only fans or they, they post their images on these image boards. They often pose with weed and weed paraphernalia and they make weed related comments. They wear weed related merchandise. I've even seen where Instagram girls have sponsorships by like weed companies. They'll be promoting CBD. They'll be promoting some glass company that makes pipes and bongs. They might even be promoting some company that makes edibles if they live in an area where it's legal. And I'm like, wow, it's just like selling anything. You know, it's just like a girl promoting anything, any sponsor, but it's, it's often weed. And I noticed that more and more with women actually over the years, like, like I had a girlfriend where like, she was really into like, like she smoked weed, but like, she also like had weed stickers and, and, you know, she was like an art, an artsy girl. So she was creative about it. She wasn't just like posting, she wasn't just like putting generic weed leaf stickers on things. She would draw a lot of weed leaves and her friends were that way too. There was a lot of like weed oriented decoration. I went to a party with her and one of her friends was wearing like yoga pants that just had marijuana leaves all over them. And these are like artsy kind of hipsterish girls. You know, I wouldn't call my girlfriend at that time a hipster, but her friends kind of fell into that category, what people at the time might have called hipsters. And they were really into like wearing weed-related merch, which, you know, I can tell you, I like when I was smoking weed all day, every day for a decade, I never wore anything weed-related. You know, I was never one of those stoners who wore weed-related merch, just didn't... Not because it was illegal, just because it didn't make sense to do that. But I have noticed, like, among young women, like, a, a, a huge increase in, like, promoting weed use. And it goes hand in hand with porn becoming more common, with more and more women controlling their own porn online, making their own porn. Even if it's just posing. Even if it's not nude. Even if it's just, like, a girl who takes, like, revealing photos of herself for Instagram, I've just noticed that, like, weed merch, weed products play a huge role in all this. Just really interesting. I don't even, I don't even, I don't have some conclusion. I'm not even trying to say it's a bad thing. I mean, it doesn't seem good either, though. I've just noticed this phenomenon. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I think all of the, all this stuff, I think, has turned a certain type of man off from this. And I'm curious to see where it goes. 
Because, I mean, there has been a massive increase in the number of women who do this. And we heard about that during Corona, COVID, when people weren't working and they were locked down. I heard that a lot of young women tried it out. But I also heard that like OnlyFans, for example, which I'm totally unfamiliar with. I've only heard people talk about OnlyFans. I don't, I've never been there or anything. But um, I heard that a lot of girls were trying out OnlyFans. But the, a tiny percentage makes significant money. Like most of the time you're just sharing revealing photos or nude photos for a very marginal amount of money. Not enough to really make it worth it. But, you know, we've also now with with uh, digital cameras and smartphones and everything, we've also n- now had like a couple generations who have, where it's become that much easier to take sexy photos of your girlfriend. And obviously amateur porn has gotten really big. There's a ton of amateur porn, like couples making it. But even just taking like nude photos and like we've seen where with celebrities, like years ago, like somebody hacked Fred Durst's phone and there were videos got released of like Fred Durst screwing women, which is really funny. Like whoever wanted to see that, you know, somebody, some guy out there was really turned on watching Fred Durst screw some woman. (laughs) But, you know, like the idea, like we hear about these leaks, these like nude photo leaks. We hear about like angry ex-boyfriends releasing photos he took of his girlfriend. It's not uncommon to hear about that at all. But like speaking for myself, like that just never had an appeal to me either. Like there was one time, and again, this is maybe too much information than I'd like to share, but I think it's interesting. Where like I had one girlfriend who like we were on vacation and like she wanted me to take photos of her in lingerie. And I took a couple. But I was just, I was like sitting there and I was just like, this is, this feels, I feel really stupid doing this. I was thinking like, I feel really stupid and depressed doing this. It felt stupid and depressing, you know, and it, cause it's like, the, the, I didn't even think about it. I didn't even think why that was. But like, when I think about like the logic of it, it's like, I'm already dating her. So I don't need these photos. I don't really, you know, unless you enjoy, unless you're really into the actual process, unless you're really like excited by the the act of taking the photos, just having the photos doesn't seem like that big of a deal because it's like, you know, I'm already dating her. So it's not like I need these. And then the other part of it, like you break up and like, seems extremely depressing to me to be like looking at photos of your ex-girlfriend and getting off on that. And I know guys do that, but personally I, I would find something even more stupid and depressing about doing that. And then it adds a whole other level of stupidity and depression to be sending those out to be like, I've heard about guys sending them to a girl's family. It's horrible. It just shows you how low men will go. Like, imagine sending a nude photo of a girl to her dad. I'm sure that's a crime. I don't know, though. Seems like if that's not a crime, it should be. It doesn't matter what the reason is. That should be a crime. But, uh, yeah, the whole, like, taking nude photos of your girlfriend thing, I think, has become that much more common. And you hear about leaks, deliberate and otherwise. Just sounds like a problem to me. But, you know, people like that forbidden idea. To go back to, like, the, the 
increase in incest porn, you know, like a part of that's that it's like this forbidden idea and people are turned on by the forbidden. But I mean, it, it, you know, it's one of the reasons why people cheat. In addition to having a genuine attraction to somebody, one of the reasons people cheat is because it's forbidden and exciting. And I mean, I've only ever been, on, I've never been on the end. I've never cheated on a girlfriend, but I have been on the other side of that. And it was just, you know, I, like I, I had this uh, affair where it was like she had a boyfriend or a fiance who was always traveling. So she was basically living like a single woman and I was single. And I'll take full responsibility for being involved. I mean, it was I was drinking a lot. So, I mean, I have all my justifications. I, I justified it to myself in the sense that I was like, oh, you know, uh, I'm not doing anything wrong, but I had a friend who I told, I told a friend about it who told who said to me, you know, you're just as responsible as she is. And I was just like, yeah, you're right. You're right. And I wouldn't say I was naive about the situation, but I, I would say I was somewhat innocent to how those things actually work. Cause I've been, you know, like, like half the girls that I've been involved with, which isn't very many had boyfriends when I met them and we we first like messed around when they still had a boyfriend but like two of them immediately broke up with their boyfriends afterward which is at least like trying to make it right you know they at least like they did something wrong but you know the truth is a lot of women go from a, one relationship to the next someone might disagree but my own experience having female friends as well as just my own experience dating with women is that more often than not, they, they tend to go from one relationship to the next. I'm not saying that as a criticism. I'm just saying that that seems to be more common. Whereas my male friends will go significant amounts of time. Even if they, even if they would like to have a new girlfriend, they tend to go significant amounts of time between finding one, whether it's purposeful or not. And it's funny too, I've noticed this with female friends too, where like, you know, I've had a couple uh, woman friends who will be like, you know, this, this time I'm going to wait a while. This time I'm just going to like be single and do my own thing for a little while. And like two weeks goes by and they're already with somebody again. So, I mean, it, it that might be a long time to them, but a long time to a man seems like it, it can be months and years. It can be a really long time, a really long time. But, you know, a couple of these girls, you know, it's like we, we, you know, kind of messed around or something. And, you know, a couple of them immediately broke up with their boyfriends. And I didn't seek that situation out. It was always them making the first move. And they were already unhappy in their relationships, you know, however you want to spin it. But it's the truth. They were unhappy. And, you know, and that's doing the right thing. The right thing to do is to immediately break up with their boyfriends. One of them got back together with her boyfriend. And they got married briefly. And I think they got divorced. So it's like she, she left him, then, like, dated me for a little while. And then left me and immediately got back together with her previous boyfriend. I don't know if he knew the real situation that led to all that. I don't know if he knew the truth, but they got back together and then they got married very soon after. And then I last I heard, they I, I know they got divorced, but it seemed like they probably got divorced within a year or two. Definitely not long. You know, how could you, it just seems doomed. But this other situation, it, like it was the only time I've been involved in a situation that went on for a few months, 
where she didn't leave her boyfriend. And I honestly didn't really want her to. The truth is, like, deep down, I didn't really trust her. Like, I liked her. She, you know, there was, a, there was a connection there, and I liked her and everything. But, you know, it was just, I, deep down, I didn't trust her. And the fact that she didn't leave her boyfriend immediately meant that she wasn't even trying to make it good. And I don't think there was a way to make it good. But, that you know, I was definitely new to that sort of thing where it blew my mind how easily, I mean, granted, the guy was gone all the time. He was, like, traveling to other states and stuff all the time. So, uh, you know, it made it very easy, like sneaking around or whatever was pretty much a non-issue. But it still kind of blew my mind how easily it happened. And honestly, it was, it was so extremely distressing. Like, I got no thrill out of the doing something wrong side of it. Like, it was a little fun to kind of be covert in the sense that, like, we'd be hanging out with a group of people and they didn't know that we had this thing going on. Like, that was kind of fun. Like, it kind of felt like a secret club we had or something. But in terms of, like, any... Like, there was really very little sexual motivation for me. Almost none, to be honest. It was just, you know, a good time with somebody is basically all it was. But the problem with it, though, is just, like, it just caused me... Like, I was in this extreme state of anxiety all the time. And it's like, well, of course I was. Of course I was in this state of distress. And there was a lot of dark spiritual stuff going on, too. Like, very dark synchronicities were coming up. A lot of just darkness was surrounding the whole situation. And honestly, extremely, everybody involved is extremely lucky. And then it, there ended up being another guy involved. Like that was near the end, but I, there ended up being another guy involved. So she was lying to me about yet another guy that she got involved with. <laughs> and I wasn't even mad. You know, I, I was just like, yeah, of course. What, what did I expect? Somebody who would lie to their boyfriend, fiance about me. Why wouldn't she lie to me, who she doesn't even have a relationship with? You know, she's cheating on her boyfriend with me. Why wouldn't she then, quote unquote, cheat on me with some other guy? So, you know, it's just a fucking tangled web. And I think this person experienced severe trauma earlier in their life. Like, she only ever hinted at it, and I'm not going to say much. But I think this is somebody who was born into a, an extremely bad situation and had a number of events early in their life happen to them that were horrible so i mean people behave the way they do sometimes for a reason and i don't even dislike her i don't even have a problem with her but it was just such a tangled web and the way i feel about it is nobody was murdered nobody committed suicide if you go through that you're good the most you can possibly hope for from a situation like that is that nobody was murdered and nobody committed suicide because honestly that's a realistic possibility that's the oldest story ever told. You know, most murder suicides happen because of that. Or the suspicion of that, let alone the reality. So like when it was all said and done, and I had a chance to think about it, I was like, you know what? That's a situation that can easily lead to death. And that is not an exaggeration at all. A boyfriend or husband finding out that his wife or girlfriend is cheating on him with another guy could have killed me, could have killed her, could have killed himself, could have killed us all. And in any, any one of those possibilities, 
is horrible, obviously. But it was still, it was an eye-opening experience because it just showed me how easily those situations can happen, how you can delude yourself, even if you know what's up. Like, Because I feel like I did know the score. But I think about like the severe distress that I was feeling. Like I was in this constant state of anxiety and I wonder why. Huh, I wonder why. That just tells you something about anxiety in general. Yeah, some people have anxiety disorders. But how many people who are experiencing extreme anxiety are doing something wrong that they know is wrong and even if they've rationalized it and justified it even if they've blocked it out of their mind their spirit knows it's wrong and the signs are all there so the fact that nobody died honestly you the most you can hope for is to break even in that situation it's not a good uh, it's not a good equation to be involved in that kind of thing. And when I look back, it was like, yeah, we, we had great conversations and great fun. There was a strong connection, which is why it happened at all. And it, I don't think it was, the motivation wasn't a sleazy one either. You know, it really wasn't that sleazy when it came down to it. You always imagine that's what it'll be. You always imagine that those scenarios are sleazy in nature. This one really wasn't. The sleaze was really just, there wasn't even much sleaze at all to it. Yeah, you could say it's sleazy in that way, but I mean, it wasn't sexually very sleazy, at least on, on my side. And, uh, you know, but when all, when all of a sudden done, just nobody died, that's all you can hope for. And a lot of time has passed now. So the more time passes without somebody killing somebody or committing suicide in that situation, the better. And I had a friend who about a year ago was involved in, he was in, in an almost identical situation with a married woman where a married a married woman that he met was unhappy in her marriage and she told a very good story and he's a smart guy he's, he's a really smart guy a really sharp guy but she told a really good story oh, her husband's a depressed alcoholic he doesn't even talk to her he just gets home from work, he goes into his, his own room, and he just drinks. There's no affection, there's no love, you know, no real, there's nothing really going on. Which you would ask, like, why doesn't she just end the marriage? I mean, they had kids and stuff, I guess, but still a situation, like, why even endure that? But uh, he really liked her. They had a connection, once again. And so they had this ongoing affair, I think it went on for months, and... He, because I, 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 I tried to kind of, you know, I'm not, I didn't try to give him overbearing advice, but I was like, oh, I've been there. Just be careful. You know, I didn't want to act like some seasoned veteran because the reality is you can't tell somebody, you don't want to be preachy to a friend. You know, this guy's smart. He knows, but you could tell that he kind of had the delusion a little bit too, where it was like, oh, this is different. She told him a really good story. She, she was very convincing and she, she kind of played the victim because we talked a lot about it and I'm hesitant to bring it up, but I'm not naming names. I don't think he'd be upset based on our conversations. And again, enough time has passed now. But, uh, you know, she told this story about her husband, how it's like, basically it doesn't, it's not going to matter. I was like, I was like, what you need to worry about is the husband. I know she's made him seem like a non-factor. But what you need to watch out for is the husband. And he was like, oh, no, he wouldn't even care. And then it, it turns out he knew right away that this had happened before. Like she had run away with some other guy. And the husband found out. And they stayed together, which is another 
warning sign. But it, so you're, it's happening again. She's doing this again. You're, you're not the first one. This is, you know, so she's done this with somebody else. But he was very, he, he, he was very confident that like the husband wasn't going to be a factor. And again, I don't think it was sleazy in nature. I don't, my friend isn't a sleazy guy. It's a sleazy situation maybe, but it really, it didn't seem like it was sleazy. And, uh, you know, sure enough though, I hadn't really talked to him about it in a while. And then he's like, oh, the husband found out. What happened was this is because like, because the way that she presented her husband is that he was basically this like drunk Neanderthal who was too depressed to notice anything. He didn't think about what she was doing. He was just in his own world all the time. And then he told me that the husband was doing the laundry and he noticed some lingerie and he confronted her and he was like, you don't wear that stuff for me anymore. Who are you wearing this for? And she, she came up with some lie and, continu and continued the affair with my friend. And then a little while later, maybe like a few weeks or a month later, she was over at my friend's house and she got a message from her husband where he said, like, he, he, he's, he's like, don't plan on coming home. Like, don't come home. Wherever you are, just stay there. You're not coming back here. He had told her to drive his car to work. Because, like, she, she went over to my friend's house after work because she, like, lived in, I think she lived, like, an hour away and she would, she would commute to work. And the husband had said, oh, I want to take your car into the shop today or something, so just take my car to work, which she should have picked up on that right away. And he had a GPS tracker in his car, like as many people do today. So his phone would tell him where his car is. Pretty common. It's not He didn't even like plant a bug. It was just that he told her to take his car and his phone knows where his car is. So he was able to see that she went to some other place after work or like during work or whatever it was. And he, so he knew that she was lying and he had told her to take his car, which she should have known right away that something was up. Take, oh, just take my car. I, I want to do something with your car today. You know, so she should have known right there. And, you know, it, it kind of, fortunately, once again, nobody died. Nobody was killed. Nobody committed suicide. But that's a real possibility in those situations, especially because it had happened before. This woman had done this before. And I think it ended up... You know, there ended up being like a little bit of drama with her or something, but fortunately the husband never confronted my friend and that never came to a head. Thank God, like truly thank God, you know, because that's just, it's the oldest story ever told and it often results in death. But, uh, you know, he ended up, my friend ended up like really like thinking about that guy and really, really thinking about his situation, which he hadn't done. And ended up, you know, really understanding that guy's position, which is good. You know, he, he learned something. But this is something that, you know, that situation and the situation I was in, people who do that, people who have these affairs, who cheat on their boyfriend or husband, and men do it as well. But I mean, I'm a man, my friend's a man, so this is our experience with women who do it. They come across like they know what they're doing. Like they come across like, oh, uh, 
like like they're experts at what they're doing, which should be enough of a red flag as it is. But you get the impression like, oh, like she has it under control. You know, she she's being smart about this. And then you realize they're not at all. Because somebody who would even do that at all, somebody who would even have a long, drawn-out affair with somebody, that's a stupid enough decision as it is. Yeah, there's passion. You know, yeah, there's there's magnetism. You're attracted to other people in life. But someone who doesn't have the discipline to avoid that, you know, someone who doesn't have it in them to not do that is doing something stupid to begin with on a practical level. So how could you possibly trust that they have some plan and they're being smart and safe about it? And like her putting her, like, I bet she didn't even think about the fact that she put her lingerie in the, the laundry and that she didn't, she hadn't been wearing it for a while. Like, I bet she didn't even think about the fact that her husband might see that. And she, cause what I said to my friend before all this came to a head is I was like, just don't underestimate her husband. I know she's told you this story that he's he's basically too too drunk and depressed to care or pay attention, but don't underestimate him. Like men and people in general have an animal sense, and it, it happens even even if you if somebody's about to break up with you, and they haven't done it yet, you get a sense for that. Even you know people are far more psychic than we give ourselves credit for, and it's like this guy he's gonna feel something. Doesn't matter how numb he is. There's a strong chance that he knows something is going wrong. And I mean, I even got a sense for that in my situation where there was like a weekend where I spent I spent a weekend with that girl that I was seeing. And it was the first like weekend where we spent the whole weekend together. And, you know, her boyfriend was traveling. He was out of town and he started calling her. And he, I guess he like he did. He never called her, but he just kept calling her. And it's like, no doubt that guy's sixth sense was going off. No doubt, like, psychically, that guy knew something was up. Something didn't feel right to him. And it's like the same thing with that husband, like, underestimating the other guy, where it's like, he knows on a deep level, people aren't idiots. And so, like, not even thinking about the fact that he might see that your sexy underwear is in the laundry and you, you never wear it anymore. So why would it be in the laundry? Why would you be wearing that? For not for him, you know, so it's like he did the math on that. She told him some story and then something like, oh, why don't you take my car today? To not think about that either. And, you know, that definitely echoed my situation where I had it. There were a couple moments. One of them involved a phone bill where I was talking to the girl I was seeing and I mentioned how her phone, like on my phone bill, it, it hurt because like she had a different area code on her phone. So like on the phone bill, it said that the, the text messages and phone calls were coming from a different state. Like it still said the state that she used to live in. And I just mentioned it like, like it was funny. Like we were just like drinking and I was like, oh yeah, you know, my phone bill says you're still living in blah, 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 blah land. And she froze up and she goes, wait a second. Phone bills say, phone bills have a list of like who you've texted or called. And I said, yeah, like it comes in the mail or like you can check it online. You can see a list of who somebody's called. You can see if you're paying a phone bill, you have a list of who you've called and texted. And it tells you sometimes where they live, where the, where the phone, where the area code is and stuff like that. 
And she, she got like a meat, she immediately froze up and looked really alarmed. And she was like, oh shit. She's like, my boyfriend pays the phone bill. Like he's the one in control of the phone bill. And it would have shown that she's texting this number all the time, all hours of the night. And uh, other things too, like she would use Ubers a lot. And her Uber number, or her, not her Uber number, but like, like she would take Ubers to my house. Or like we would take an Uber together, you know, after like going out for drinks. To the, and she, she did it so much during such a short amount of time that it would automatically suggest my address. And I remember like she kind of liked it, like she thought it was cute or something. But I was thinking like something like that too. It's like, no doubt you can clear that. And it's like, what if you're hanging out with your boyfriend and you take an Uber and my address is the first thing that pops up? Like, that's dangerous because, like, that's my address. First of all, I don't want this guy knowing my address. And then second of all, like, is he if he notices that, you know, that's just it's just a little thing that doesn't seem I'm not even someone who does this kind of stuff. And I know this. I'm not even someone who sneaks around. I've never had an affair of my own. And you know, even I know that you shouldn't do this. I mean, granted, I'm a paranoid person who basically lives like a secret agent. I'm like that guy that my sister went to high school with who carried a briefcase and pretended he was a secret agent. No, but really, like, I'm hypervigilant, bordering on paranoid about things. And, like, if my phone started, like, auto-suggesting my affairs address, I would clear that shit every time. I would have thought about the fact that like somebody else, the other person pays the phone bill and has access to the phone records. But see, that's exactly what's wrong with this. You shouldn't even be doing that. Like the fact that like you have to even worry about that is such a, a complication in your life. And you want to talk about having anxiety. You want to talk, you know, I'm not even calling her an idiot or anything. Actually, I do have a certain respect for her as a person. I like her. I don't have any contact with her, but as a person, I liked her, you know, and I, and I still, I still, I don't have a low opinion of her as a human being. I think there's a reason why she's the way she is, but, uh, you know, just something like that just seems so obvious to me. Like if you're going to be doing something that can result in murder and suicide, <laughs> which you shouldn't be doing, if that's the case, you know, it's, it's like thinking about like phone bill records showing who you text all the time. Your Uber auto-suggesting some address that you shouldn't be going to. What, what address is that? My friend's situation, like driving your husband's car to go over to your affair's house. Not even thinking about the fact that he has a GPS connection with his phone. Not even thinking about throwing your lingerie in with the laundry that he's going to see and potentially wash. And to cuckold him that way, too. To cuckold him. To make him wash your lingerie. Like, even if she didn't think he was going to wash it, it's like the fact that he even had to see that and do that. You know, that's it's just so messed up. And just to be living in the state of anxiety where, you're, where you should be worrying about that stuff. But it just shows you that these people, they don't have the control you think they have. They don't have the mastery over the situation that you might assume because like what ends up happening in that situation, and this is what happened with me, it's what happened with my friend, is that we overestimated her and we underestimated the other man. 
Well, in my situation, the other man never found out. And I even met him way later. That was fucked up. I was wasted. I smoked a cigarette with him and chatted. Really fucked up that that happened. If he had any suspicion, he, he never knew. He told her I was weird. After we met, he told her, like, oh, that guy's kind of weird. Like, he didn't, not, not even in a way, like, he didn't like me. He just said, oh, that guy, he's, he's cool, but kind of weird. Which I, I feel like is some way, because people don't usually say that about me. I know, I'm, I know I'm weird. But it's like when people meet me, they don't usually say that right off the bat. So I, I can't help but feel that he called me weird because he, on, on some deep level, he knew something was wrong. Because the whole fucking situation was weird. Really fucked. Not a good... Glad I went through it. Glad it's over. Um, but uh, overestimating the girl, thinking like she has more awareness and control over this situation than she does. And underestimating a man's ability to just know, to psychically know. And women know too. You know, women... You can reverse the genders in all this and tell the same story, you know? It's not, this isn't about women being horrible. This is just talking about my experience happens to be with women, with a woman. My friend's experience happens to be with a woman. We know men do the same things. Just a little disclaimer there. No, this is, this is a, an argument for misogyny. No, this is, this, is, this is universal, but just you overestimate the person and you underestimate the other guy and, you know, that's a recipe for disaster and you're lucky if nobody gets truly hurt. Like hurt feelings, broken hearts are the best thing you can get. That's the best thing you can hope for. And somebody could make the argument where it's like, oh, well, polyamory would solve all this. Nope. I've known a ton of polyamorous people in Olympia here. I used to hang out at a bar it's the only time that I became like uh, friends with people at a bar, and I liked all of them. They were they were I liked them. They were fun people. They were older than I was, and so it was kind of fun being like this young dude who just went to parties because like I ended up drinking with these people at a bar, and then I started getting invited to their house parties, and I honestly always had fun. They were they were good, nice people. I would never say anything bad about them as people, but a number of these couples were polyamorous, and they were a little they were older than I was. And there was always this freaking drama. I didn't even know what was going on. And then like, as I got to know these people a little better, and I was never super close to them, but as I got to know them a little better and I started to hear the gossip, it was like the people in these polyamorous relationships, there was always some like needless complication going on. Even though these people were all mature adults, there was seriously always something. There was always some jealousy. There was always this bitterness even though they all approved of this, it was like there was always some problem with that. Always. And you could say like, oh, well, if we lived in a polyamorous society, you could just like pursue all of the side relationships you want and you'd be no problems. Well, this is another example of human beings need to, needing to relearn the same lessons. Why do you think that all these cultures, you know, and, and granted there are non-monogamous cultures and people always cite those as examples. People are, like people who are into polyamory always bring up non-monogamous cultures as an example of how it can work. But do you not? And, but then they, they're also always talk. Like I worked with a guy who was polyamorous. I think I've mentioned him before because he just really rubbed me the wrong way. 
he was always preaching about like the virtue of non-monogamy and like telling you about the latest thing he read in some book about polyamory and this and that. And there was just nonstop jealousy. He was always jealous of his girlfriend because she had a much easier time being polyamorous. Like she was able to meet people much easier. So he was always desperate because he, he was in this competition with his girlfriend where because they're polyamorous, they're both kind of, and they would never admit it, but they, the truth is they were competing, you know? And maybe some guy likes being a cuckold where his girlfriend sleeps with way more people than he does. But, you know, that's not, not most people. And it, it was just sad. But he would tell us this shit, and it was really inappropriate for the workplace. And there were a lot of issues with this guy being inappropriate. And I, I, I reported some things, actually. I'm not a snitch, but I, I finally just reported some stuff that he was saying because it was just out of line in a workplace. And uh, some of the things he was doing. Because the thing is, because, he, because his girlfriend was so much more successful, quote-unquote, at polyamory than he was, he started to try to hit on all the women at the workplace. You know, the majority, virtually all of them, wanted nothing to do with him. So there were a lot of issues with his behavior. Of course, he's a super liberal, progressive guy. Of course. Of course. The guy who sexually harasses all the women is also a feminist. But anyway, this guy, he would always like share whatever the latest insight was from a book he read. And he was always talking about these other cultures who practice non-monogamy and how they've solved the problem. But he was also talking about all the jealousy he would also talk about how, like, oh, you just have to work through the jealousy. You just have to, like, basically suffer through it and realize that, like, society is conditioned to, f to make you feel that way. But meanwhile, you're just, you're, you never really resolve it and you're just suffering most of the time anyway. And uh, this guy, though, he, you know, he, so I got, an, I got insight into like what he was reading and like what he was sharing. And I've listened to podcasts with people who talk about polyamory. Like I'm interested in steel manning the argument and having been in a similar situation. Like when I was involved in that affair, there were a few times I thought like I just as like an exercise, I thought like, how would this be different if we, if this was like a polyamorous situation where like this girl's boyfriend knew about me and just let it happen like i don't think it would be much better um for me at least because i don't like that i i would fucking hate to share somebody with somebody you know i just that's not me at all but it goes back to like relearning the same lessons where it's like yeah there are examples of non-monogamous cultures where that's more acceptable and maybe they have an easier time with it maybe they've found Maybe they found a way to do it. I don't know. I would guess some of the same problems show up there, too. I've never studied it. But, you know, think about how many cultures are monogamous. And why, why is, you know, in the same way that, like, so many different belief systems discovered that jacking off all the time isn't a good idea. For the same reason that Buddhism discovered that sexual immorality is a bad idea. It's one of the Buddhist precepts. One of the five Buddhist precepts is not to partake in sexual immorality. And that involves infidelity. That involves perversion. It involves the same ideas. You know, sexual immorality in the context of Buddhism isn't that far off from sexual immorality in a Christian context. 
And why did they both realize that? Why did both religions come to that conclusion? And why do we have to relearn that lesson? You know, it's like Christians didn't decide that, you know, you shouldn't covet your neighbor's wife just for the whim, you know, just on a whim. Christianity didn't just say, hey, you know, it's a bad idea. Don't do it. We just arbitrarily decided that that's a bad idea. It's because humans had to learn that lesson. Humans had to learn that, you know, you're playing with dangerous chemicals when you involve romance and sexuality and more than two people. And I mean, think about how hard it is to navigate a one-on-one -on -one relationship or even a friendship, but a one-on-one -on -one romantic relationship is filled with enough trials. And then you throw in more people. So it's difficult to navigate just on a basic psychological level. And so at some point, some of these dominant cultures independently realized that we should encourage monogamy. We should encourage this structure. We should discourage sleeping around. But it seems to be something that we have to relearn. It seems to be something that we have to relearn. And, you know, among these polyamorous couples I've known in town here, it's like a number of them, and it's not like I've known tons, but it's like just from the, the sample, sample that I've seen, some of them decided not to do it anymore because it was causing them too much grief. Maybe it works for some people. It does, it does work for some people, but still, it causes people trouble. And it's like, is your libido so strong? It, even if you get away from the libido and just say like the passion, the attraction for another person, is it so strong that it's worth like adding that whole other dilemma to your life? I don't know. That's not, thankfully, it's not my choice. And I wouldn't tell people they can't do that. Like, I don't want to come across like, kind of like with porn. I don't want to be puritanical about this and tell anybody what to do because I don't believe in doing that. Do that if you think that's what you want to do. But also realize that people had to learn that lesson many eons ago. Many eons ago. And then you add in things like people working together. Like men and women are in contact with more of each other than they ever were before. Like one of the reasons the Bible says, you know, not to covet your neighbor's wife is because your neighbor's wife would have been the only one of the only women you regularly see. But we live in a world now where like men and women work together. They socialize together in large groups. You know, there's a lot more contact and I'm not saying that shouldn't happen. I love the fact that I have women friends. I love the fact that I can hang out with women and be friends with them. But it's still a different world we're living in where not just that you see them more, not just that you work with people. And a lot of a lot of affairs take place in the workplace. But it's like you socialize, work with women, and you know, you're exposed to more of each other, which of course exponentially increases the possibility of this stuff. And then you have phones and the internet. So you have all these ways to contact each other. Because it's like you think about like the way it used to be where like you, you'd have to call somebody's house. Like if you're having an affair with somebody, you have to call the same landline that their uh, husband uses. You know, you can't just text. You can't just send Facebook messages, Instagram messages. 
And you think about social media ads increases the likelihood of this stuff even more where it's like you're giving each other attention on there. Like when I was involved in that affair with the girl, it's like leading up to before we actually got together, she was like liking all my posts. And then after we like started seeing each other, that continued for a while. And that's another thing, like maybe you shouldn't do that because people are going to see that and they're going to be like, oh, you know, she's she seems to be giving this guy a lot of attention online. Just another one of those little things. And so all of this just increases the amount of contact you have. And it's like, what's the alternative? Like making women wear burqas and staying at home all day? Well, that's puritanical and that's not good either. Which is why discipline is at the core of all this. Just having the discipline to not indulge. Having the discipline to not engage. You know, I think that's how you get through this. But people are hungry. You know, it's not that they're—it's not that their libidos are that strong. It's not that their hearts desire this stuff that much, even if it feels like that. Part of that's just not having discipline. But it's—it's uh, it's also that people are hungry. People don't feel validated. You know, they don't feel validated, and that's what they're—they're they're seeking too. So it's like. It's not just lust. It's not just love. It's also like seeking this validation and people never feel full. And I read this article in the New York Post, which is sort of like the Fox News of newspapers. You know, it's, it's pandering to a different audience than a lot of the corporate news. And so you should, you have to remember that. It's kind of, it can be kind of tabloidy feeling. But there was a recent article in there that kind of touched upon this subject where it's a very popular talking point these days among liberals, mainstream liberals even, who will say like, oh, well, monogamy is a thing of the past. Like we need to move on to like non-traditional polyamorous relationships. I know a lot of people who say that, even non-polyamorous people, which is interesting. And this article was about that. And it was an article about luxury beliefs. And the, the author of the article described a woman they knew and said, like, I know a woman who has been saying, who, who mentioned, like, she doesn't believe, she believes that, like, monogamy is a thing of the past and that we need to embrace polyamory. And she's from an affluent background and her parents were married. She's from a wealthy, you know, affluent background and she was raised by parents who stayed together and the journalist, and maybe this woman's made up, but I know people like this. This isn't a, if this is a composite or if this is a, just a made up character for the article, it's a real type of person because I know them too. But the article cited this conversation with a woman who said like, oh, you know, monogamy is a thing of the past. We need to embrace like non-traditional families and relationships. And the journalist said, well, I asked her, I was like, well, what, what was your family background? And the girl said, like, oh, my parents were married my entire childhood. And, you know, we came from kind of an upper class background. And the journalist asked her, well, are you planning on getting married and having a traditional family? And she was like, well, yeah. And so they were like, so you're not going to be polyamorous. You're not going to have like an open relationship, an open marriage. And the girl was like, well, no. 
but you're encouraging other people to. And the article was about how these ideas trickle down and they end up impacting the people who need structure more than anybody. The article was talking about how there's a certain class of people, typically educated liberal people, who have embraced these alternative ideas like polyamory, but they're not actually interested in practicing them themselves. It's just kind of a way of signaling that they are open and progressive and moving forward. And the reality is it's not going to impact them. If they promote these ideas, it's going to impact working class and poor people who are already suffering the most from absent fathers, from children born out of wedlock. And statistically, it shows that, like, I mean, a, a, a huge amount of men in prisons, you know, didn't have fathers in their lives. They're the products of divorce, single parent homes. And so am I. You know, it's not like it's a it's not like it's a, a guaranteed disaster. I mean, maybe somebody else would be, maybe somebody else would look at me and, and say otherwise. But it's, it's not that like being raised by a single mother is a guaranteed disaster, but it certainly can be. And statistics show that it's there's far more likely to be severe repercussions to living in a single parent household. Like I think my situation was fairly unique. My dad paid child support. He came to all my games. He was there on Christmas, even after the divorce. You know, my family wasn't wanting for much. But there's a lot of families who are. There's a lot of single parent families divorced or parents who never married where, you know, those are the men who end up in prison. Those, those are the situations that end up catastrophic sometimes. And so like when these ideas like, oh, you know, just don't even bother getting married. Don't even uh, don't worry about the traditional nuclear family. Just try polyamory. You know, while the upper classes can kind of entertain that, and they might not even participate, but they'll just kind of signal that they're into that and promote that. And then that trickles down to these people who really don't have the foundation or the structure to support that. And it impacts their lives that, you know, who knows how realistic that is the idea that like, because I mean, people should be allowed if you're in the upper classes, like you should be allowed to have your beliefs, even if you don't practice them, you should be able to like have your opinions I don't believe, I mean, you, you veer into censorship when you say like, they shouldn't be saying that. But it, it, it was an interesting idea at the very least that the, the trickle down of those ideas is that the people who need that structure and are going to face the, the most severe repercussions of that aren't the educated upper classes who are the ones promoting it. It's these other people. So that was an interesting idea. And the article termed the, these luxury beliefs, where they're basically beliefs that the people don't even practice or truly believe in, but it's a signal to other people. And I'm very familiar with this. This describes so much of what's going on culturally. You know, defund the police is another one. That was a, It's unbelievable how many people were saying that. During summer 2020, the number of people who never expressed any of that. They might've been critical of the police before, but they were saying defund the police or even you know remove the police entirely. Who's that gonna impact the most? It's not gonna be the educated upper classes who live in safer communities, gated communities, who have the money to 
higher private security. But it sounds good. It sounds good to say defund the police. It sounds good to promote those ideas. And so th that describes so many of these beliefs that people have. They're lux luxury beliefs. They're ideas that sound good socially when you're with your peers who are all in a similar situation because we do tend to cluster among people who are similar to us. That's just how it is. So when you're with a lot of educated people and you're entertaining these ideas that sound good in theory, they're luxury beliefs. They're ideas that aren't actually going to impact you very much. The people they could potentially impact are not these people's peers. But it, so much is about signaling ideas socially. And I mean, I could go down an entire laundry list of what I consider luxury beliefs, but you can probably assume what I, some of the things that I would put in that category. But the, it's interesting that the article used polyamory as an example, because I've personally witnessed that. I've, I've witnessed a lot of people who challenge the idea of polyamory who don't even have an interest in polyamory, who are actually interested in more traditional relationships. And I don't know, I'm not the kind of person, I, I don't promote ideas, like even though not everything, not every idea that I like is something that I would put into practice in my own life, but I, I also try not to have opinions that don't apply to my own worldview. I try not to, I just, I don't naturally take those on, I just don't do it, it doesn't make me better or worse, but it's like there are so many ideas like that that people entertain just because... They sound good over drinks with your highly educated peers. And you've had the time to kind of wax theoretical on these things. Luxury beliefs. I'm not going to use that phrase because that's just it sounds like another catchphrase. But as an idea, I think there's something to that. These are luxury beliefs. I mean, you could apply it to porn, I guess. I might be reaching a little bit. But I think you could apply it to like the idea of promoting porn the acceptance of porn. Like, you don't want to be puritanical about porn. I think it's good that human beings can go to a porn site once in a while when they're just feeling too horny and it's distracting them. Because, you know, like Ramdas refers to the horny celibate, which is uh, the celibate guy who's so horny and preoccupied with sex that it's actually causing him more distraction than it would if he wasn't celibate. You know, porn is good for that reason, where it's like if you're so distracted by your libido that you can't, and you can't get beyond that, it's, it's a good thing that you can look at porn. It's a good thing that you can get off once in a while. But, uh, you know, so I wouldn't take a puritanical approach to that. But the idea of, like, promoting porn and taking this, like, overly... I don't know, encouraging porn too much, encouraging sexuality too much. Like, you don't want to overcompensate. You don't want to go from being like, well, the repression of sexuality is bad, to being like, sexuality needs to be a part of everything we do, which is where we're at now. When you get into that, 
you know, it starts to become kind of a, a luxury. But uh, yes, yeah, I thought this was going to be a short episode. But it does start to become sort of a luxury. You know, I don't, I don't know if that really fits into this luxury beliefs idea, but I, I think it's kind of, it's along the same lines because I realized at a certain point, like I went out to, uh, I went out for drinks with a girlfriend that I had and like some of her friends and the subject of porn came up and like this group of couples was talking about like looking at porn and it wasn't like an orgy in the making. Like nobody was talking about it like because they wanted to have an orgy that night it came across just kind of like signaling or something. Cause I didn't want, I didn't want to have this conversation. I didn't want to talk about porn habits. And, uh, you know, so, so it's like this, the idea of a bunch of couples sitting around, like, you know, South park made fun of like when one of the guys got a girlfriend, they started going out on these couples nights where you go hang out with a bunch of couples, which I've always hated. Like when I have a girlfriend, you know, which it's been a while, you know, deliberately, but uh, I swear, I swear I'm not an incel. Um, but, you know, I always hated that. Like, I hated going out with other couples. Like, yeah, there were cool couples that are fun to hang out with. But, like, the idea of hanging out with, like, there was this guy I knew who invited me to a party. Like, he and his wife were having. And once again, it wasn't an orgy thing. But he was just like, oh, it's, it's, it's going to be couples only. And I was like, well, I'm not going. Because it's gay. That's the thing a lot of people don't realize is that it's gay. And I don't mean that, I don't mean that in an insulting sense, but it's just sort of like a bunch of like single people or, or a bunch of like couples without kids. I don't know, it just feels gay. And I'm not saying gay as in stupid. It it just feels gay. That's how I feel. <laughs> That's how I feel like when you're out with like on a couple's night. Like it feels, it just feels like totally counterintuitive to what it is to be in a relationship, to hang out with other couples. But South Park kind of made fun of that when they were talking about uh, like one of the kids gets a girlfriend and they start going on these couples nights and the couples just say like, Ooh, like me and Linda were watching Grey's Anatomy last night. And they were just talking about how lame that is. And uh, that's how it felt when they were talking about porn when I was out. It was just like, this, this, we might as well be talking about Grey's Anatomy. This isn't something I want to talk about. Not because I'm a prude, just because like, it feels like a luxury conversation. It feels like signaling or something. And uh, I don't know, I wouldn't be able to describe it any more than that. Like, you know, it just, I think you can probably kind of get, understand what I'm getting at, where it's just, like a bunch of couples sitting around talking about like you porn. I think you porn was the big porn website then. Like, oh, like, did you have you ever seen? We went to you porn, and it's like you might as well be talking about Grey's Anatomy. This sucks. But uh, talking about, uh, I'm kind of losing track here. Um, take a, let me take a pull off this.
like many years ago, like I, I was involved with a genre of music, experimental music. I st I'm still involved, but just a little less actively. Just a very niche form of experimental music. And a lot of the artists use pornographic imagery or like photos of women. And that's cool in, in doses. Like some people are good at it. Some people are interesting at it. They managed to make it interesting. But like it got to be where like every single guy it felt like was using like porn as subject matter or just nude women. And it's like, this is for a bunch of other guys. And I, I did an interview where someone asked me like, what do you think about like pornographic themes? And, I, and my response was like, porn is for my dick, not my art. And I think porn can make great art. I'm not saying it can't, but, and like I said, some people are very good at it. I have some artists I really like who did that. Some of my favorites, in fact. But it, it reached a point where I remember seeing like every freaking guy, and they're still doing this, like monkey see, monkey do, where it's like every single thing uses pornographic subject matter. Everybody's making a collage of porn. And I was just like, man... Like, why, like, this is just for other guys? Because it's, it's like supposed to signal, like, this is what I'm into. This is my obsession. But, like, your, your audience is a bunch of men. And it just never made sense to me. It never made sense to me to kind of revolve around that and to do it in such an uninteresting way to where you're just, like, showing off porn that you're probably not even into. Some of it, you know, some of the fetish stuff. Like, some people would do more fetishistic sort of themed stuff. And it's like, are you even into that? Are you even into bondage? Because some of it would veer into bondage, which I've never been interested in. And it would veer into bondage, and I was just like, it felt like, are you even into this? And you don't have to be. You don't have to be into bondage to use bondage artwork on your noise release. But I remember like seeing these releases and just feeling very critical because it, it just felt like some sort of signal. Like you're trying to show other men what your libido is all about. And I stand by that interview where I said, you know, porn represents my dick and not me. And I, I stand by that. And, you know, I have to resist the urge to be puritanical. One of the reasons I'm not puritanical is because I know how easy it is to get that way. I could be an incredibly puritanical person. I could be a severely puritanical person if I let myself. Because I know why that I know why people become puritanical. But it's it's like not drinking or something where you can easily become puritanical about not drinking. Like I have a friend who I used to drink with, and she quit drinking a little bit before me and became so puritanical about it. Like, while I don't think she would do this, I can almost see her supporting prohibition, which I would be, like, if they if they proposed a new prohibition, even though I don't drink, and I have serious issues with the amount that people drink, because I do think it's bad, I mean, drunk driving for one, the amount of crime, the amount of violent crime that happens because of alcohol. I don't care about people's self-destruction. I mean, I do. But it's like, I don't care about the self-destruction because that's somebody else's business. But the amount of violent crime, the amount of people who are drunk when they commit burglaries and robberies, and then just drunk driving above all else. I have serious issues with that, as everybody should. But, you know, I don't have a negative opinion of alcohol. I had good times drinking. 
I like that people can go have drinks. You run an entirely different risk when you have a prohibition. And we can see what happened with prohibition, where criminals became the producers of alcohol. And it didn't go away. So prohibition is a terrible idea. But, you know, this friend of mine, like, the attitude she ended up taking about drinking, just, you know, I don't judge her. And I don't want to assume too much about her. But it's like the way she talks about it just reminds me of, of like somebody who would, would support like a prohibition or a puritanical response to alcohol. And that happens too when you put yourself in an echo chamber. Like this is also a person who surrounded herself with AA people. And when you're in that environment where you're only hanging out with AA people and you start to fear alcohol and you start to fear people who drink alcohol, it's very easy to get puritanical about it. It's very easy to, to just get incredibly negative and cynical about the whole thing. And I think that's the risk you run every time you get puritanical. And it's why I resist the urge. Even though I, 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 I have many reasons to be puritanical about the things I'm talking about. But I think it's better to not go there. It's that middle path of Buddhism once again. Where it's like instead of asceticism, which is puritanical, and instead of indulgence, overindulgence, you take the middle path. And that's where Gautama Buddha developed the middle path. And it seems obvious. All it is is like, hey, strike a balance. The middle way or the middle path, it's very obvious. It's not exclusive to Buddhism, but it's the idea that, you know, Gautama Buddha spent time with the ascetics who were depriving themselves of everything. And he said, well, that's not the path. And then he spent time, he, you know, he had lived a life as a prince. So he knew all about overindulgence. And he knew that wasn't the path. So instead, he decided to promote a balance. And you think about monks. I mean, there, there's ascetic Buddhism. There are puritanical Buddhists. You could say some monks fall into that category. But they're also trying to serve a spiritual purpose. And Buddhist monks aren't typically out there trying to tell their people what to do. But uh, it's tempting, though. Asceticism is tempting. It feels very righteous sometimes to take a hardline opinion. But uh, you have to resist the urge because you become an entirely different kind of monster sometimes when you do that, when you try to tell other people what to do. But sometimes just being critical at all makes people feel like you're being puritanical. It makes it feel like you're condemning and judging people. Sometimes just speaking the truth feels that way. Sometimes just making an observation, an objective observation, can come across like a, its own form of puritanism. But you have to be honest. You have to be honest about the things you observe. You have to be truthful. But you, you have to be very careful about imposing that on other people. You know, we already learned that sexual immorality was a bad idea. But then people imposed that on other people. Rather than setting that up as a strong, sturdy guideline, it became this 
strict and severe rule. And when you do that, people want to break the rule. It's like what we see with coronavirus, where there's people who don't want to wear masks and get the vac simply because they're being told they have to. And that's fine with me. I'm fine with people having that opinion. But anytime you try to impose a strict or severe rule, there are going to be people who want to get off on that by breaking the rule. And if enough people feel that way, even if they're not participating, if enough people feel like, oh, hey, that rule is too strict, you end up overcompensating in the other direction and you have an entire generation of boys who jack off all the time and look at porn all day every day who have CDR spindles of porn, who download porn all day, who have every subcategory of porn at their disposal, where tons of girls are stripping online. And, you know, I don't, I don't have a problem with women doing that. I don't judge women for doing that. I have a friend who's a, an actual stripper. She's an actual stripper in a club. I've never once thought less of her for that. You know, she's, from what I understand, she's good at it. You know, and she knows what she's doing. I would never judge her. I would never even think about judging her for that. But I don't know that it's good when we have that. I don't know that it's good when we have OnlyFans, porn sites, image boards, I don't know that the proliferation of porn is a good thing. I don't think it is at all. And when you get too severe, when you try to be an ascetic about it, when you try to repress it, well, you're going to have a lot of people who fight against that. And that's how we ended up here. When you have an alcohol prohibition, you end up here which is that people don't have any discipline when it comes to alcohol. So you have to be careful about these things, and the middle path isn't perfect. It can be very difficult to balance these things. I wish that I could have taken the middle path with alcohol. I wish that I could have been a person who drank it, you know, like some people do, have a few drinks here and there. I wish that I could have done that. I wish I could have found a balance but I had to go far on one side with that. But my attitude doesn't have to be that way. Just because I can't do that one thing. I mean, it's the same thing for potato chips. I can't have potato chips in my house because I will eat the whole bag in one sitting. I, I don't know how to achieve the middle path when it comes to eating potato chips. I just don't. I eat them by the handful. Once that bag is open, I am eating potato chips until the bag is gone. And then I want more. That's how I am with alcohol. That's how I became with alcohol. So uh, there are some aspects of, of life where it's like you can take the middle path as a general rule, but there are specific activities that you just have to shut out. And that's just the reality of it. But in your life as a whole, you can strive for balance. And your attitude can be a balanced attitude where like, I don't think potato chips should be banned. Fortunately, I have the discipline to not buy potato chips. 
You know, I can go through the potato chip aisle. I could walk down. I, I do this sometimes. I do this. I'll walk down the potato chip aisle and just look at them. And be like, oh, I haven't seen those before. Oh, those look good. You know, sometimes I'll walk by a pizzeria and I smell pizza. I mean, there's a Domino's right down the street and I walk by it every time I go to the grocery store. I, I don't have any love for Domino's, but I'll just smell the pizza cooking. And I think, like, that smells great. I love the smell of pizza, but why not just treat it like a perfume? I don't have to go into Domino's and buy a pizza. I can just smell the perfume. And I don't think Domino's shouldn't exist, you know, because it's the same thing with pizza. If I order a pizza, I'm going to eat it until I feel sick. I can easily sit down and eat an entire pizza in one sitting. You know, and it comes from this feeling of deprivation. It's how it's alcohol became this way. Potato chips are this way and pizza is this way where if I eat one slice of pizza or two slices of pizza, if I eat one serving of potato chips, if I drink two beers, I'm going to feel deprived if I don't have more the rest of the night. And it's actually far worse to have one or two of those things than it is to have none. If I don't have a single drink, if I don't have a single potato chip, and I don't have a single slice of pizza, I don't feel deprived. But if I have just one or two, I'm going to feel deprived the whole rest of the night and probably longer than that. I'm going to feel like I'm depriving myself of something if I don't have more. So if you have something like that in your life, you might have to go zero on it. You might have to avoid it completely. But your attitude shouldn't be one where you're like, pizza's horrible. Do you know how bad that is for you? Like, do you know how bad pizza is for you? Do you know how bad alcohol is for you? People know that stuff. People aren't stupid. So even if you physically can't participate, even if you can't find a balance with a specific activity, because you'll overindulge, or you'll suffer, you'll feel like you want more if you indulge at all, your attitude doesn't have to reflect that. You can walk down the potato chip aisle and be like, oh, look at all these colors. Look at all these chips they got here. Oh, I remember eating Doritos. I remember eating spicy nacho Doritos. Doritas. But you don't have to buy them. You can smell the perfume of a pizzeria and not go into the pizzeria and buy pizza. You can drive by a bar and see people on the patio having a drink and think that looks like fun. But not go in and buy a drink. But know your limits, you know, if it is tempting, then you, you maybe you avoid it. I don't know. But I don't know. I think that the whole moral message here is that you can take the middle path with your attitude and your beliefs, even if you yourself can't take it with every single activity you do. And forming that discipline. I mean, if you do have a problem with women, like I've never been a womanizer. I've never slept around very much. But if you do have a problem with that, like just learn to appreciate looking at women and talking to women without needing to take them home, without needing to, to sleep with them, especially if you're in a relationship. You know, if, if it's a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. Getting involved in a dangerous situation where it's like, you know, it was a necessary experience and I'm glad I went through it. But like when you're involved in this affair with somebody... You know, it would have been a lot better 
And if I were if I were presented with the same situation, I don't want to assume what my response would be. But if I were presented with that same situation, I'd like to think that, oh, I can just appreciate this person for who they are at a distance, maybe without needing to be involved. You know, it's just having that discipline. And that seems to be what's often hard to, to attain is some form of discipline. Children can run free. 